Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Big stories. Big guests. The big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. So certainly one of the industries that's uh, going to take longer to recover is the airline industry. And, and with that, the tourism industry, just the ability for people to travel, either for Canadians to travel abroad or to have international travelers coming to Canada. Now, obviously, getting to a vaccine, that'll be a big step. But what about in between? What, what else can be done prior to that that can really start to get this industry getting closer back to normal? There's a lot of hope that, that testing can be a part of the solution, and, and in particular, the benefit of rapid testing. In fact, what's interesting is that uh, there's been a, a pilot project underway uh, at the, um, at, in Toronto, in partnership with McMaster Health Labs and the Greater Toronto Airports Authority, uh, testing international travelers and using rapid tests. They've done 13,000, in fact, returning international travelers who agreed to participate, or the 99% tested negative. Uh, of that uh, less than 1%, more than 80% were being detected in the initial test, and uh, the rest on day seven, with none being detected by the day 14 test. So some encouraging results, and building off of that, Air Canada has announced uh, that they are acquiring 25,000 rapid testing kits. So this is a step toward doing this, I think, on a much larger basis. You know, and the idea of, you know, making people more comfortable when it comes to getting on a plane with a bunch of strangers. And even, I think, from, from you know, government policy perspective, maybe we can have some wiggle room on this 14-day quarantine rule if we have more readily available testing. And it's something that Air Canada talks about. They say these results from this pilot project suggest a shorter test-based strategy may be an available and a safe alternative to the 14-day quarantine. So a potential game changer if we're able to to really scale this up and and deploy this on on a wide scale. Uh, So joining us to talk more about the potential of this and, um, you know, how badly the airline industry needs this kind of a solution right now. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Frederick Dimanche, uh, director of the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at Ryerson University in Toronto. Uh, Dr. Dimanche, thanks for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, So what are your thoughts on how how effective this could be in, in helping the industry find some footing here? Well, you said it yourself. You know, it could be a game changer for the industry. Um, I'm glad that you reminded people that it's probably the industry that has been the mostly affected, you know, mostly hit, um, you know, by the coronavirus and the crisis in the past few months. Uh, lots of people left their jobs, you know, just uh, in the United States. Uh, yesterday, American Airlines and United Airlines uh, just announced that they were laying off about 30,000 people. So, you know, it's it's really a struggling industry. And when we have news like this, it could be a game changer indeed. At least it's giving people hope 
hope that, um, you know, um, business is not going to go back to what it was a year ago, that's for sure. But at least we are trying to provide people with the, uh, the, the confidence that they need to travel. And um, this rapid testing uh, procedure is going to help that. And on the other hand, it's going to take away from this blanket measure to, to require for people coming from abroad a, a two-week quarantine, which, which as you know, is, is obviously uh, um, you know, deterring a lot of travelers from, uh, from going uh, anywhere around the world for business or yeah. for pleasure. Yeah, it's 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 a big factor. I mean, to have to, to factor in an additional two weeks after you've gone anywhere where you're just stuck at home, it, it's not something people are eager to do. So, you know, right. testing seems to address both of these, right? I mean, the idea just in terms of people feeling safe on airplanes and, and being around a bunch of strangers, if everybody's getting tested before they get on the plane, that would right. go a long and way in easing those concerns, wouldn't it? I think it will go a long way indeed. And, 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 and again, I think it's important to, to remind people that, um, you know, the, the studies that, that we can uh, read about uh, in the past few weeks or months, you know, indicate that um, traveling by plane is not really dangerous. You know, this is not where right. people are getting infected. Uh, you know, why? Because the airlines have been putting in place uh, very careful procedures already. They are very uh, much focusing on hygiene and sanitation. They absolutely require people to wear masks. They uh, take people's temperature before boarding the plane. So there are already all kinds of measures that are in place. Uh, not even talking about physical distancing in the plane, where where people, uh, if if it's possible, and it's very often possible because there is not much demand, right? Uh, you know, there is room in a plane, so people don't have to be sitting next to each other, or at least next to people that you you don't know. So um, this is probably going to be uh, an additional factor, you know, the testing in providing people with the trust and the confidence that they need to to travel again. Now, with regard to that quarantine period, do you think it's possible that we can figure out kind of a, a compromise here that, you know, the idea of someone getting tested uh, upon arrival and then maybe getting a follow-up test a few days later, would that be sufficient? Could we maybe do away with this, this 14-day period? Well, it's, it's possible. You know, there are some countries that uh, require a quarantine of only eight days. So that, that's already a step forward. And, and I think if yeah. we could do uh, rapid testing uh, on arrival, but also on departure, in other words, that there would already right. be some kind of a, you know, 24-hour period where people could be tested. Some countries, you know, will require you to arrive if you have a test. Uh, that is negative within a 48-hour period. And if on arrival you do another rapid testing um, uh, opportunity, um, you know, you, you, you double down on, on uh, you know, your control of the situation and making sure that people, first of all, are going to be tested. But again, uh, the other thing is that they're going to be traced. And, and that's one of the main efforts that we have to do. We have to, to track people, if I may say, or to, to trace them should they be positive. And that's, that's something that testing will achieve, because when you're yeah. being tested, we know everything about you. How much is this going to have to be scaled up uh, for it to, to, to have a meaningful impact? 25,000 tests, I mean, that, that's an initial order, Canada says, and obviously it would require a lot more than that. 
it will require a lot more. And 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 as you know, uh, um, you know, currently I don't know what's the situation in in uh, in Calgary in Alberta, but but uh, in Ontario right now, you know, the, the province is is behind uh, in terms yeah. of capacity. There is more demand uh, than what you know they can do in delivering the, the results of the test. So so obviously, you know, there is a, a big you know, public health machine that needs to be put in place. Um, it, it will take some time, but but then again, demand for travel is not going to go from from 15% of what it was last year to uh, 50 or 60% in just two or three weeks. You know, it will mm-hmm. be, uh, you know, slowly moving forward. It will take some time. Uh, and in the meantime, I mean, the airlines are looking for assistance. Uh, the, the union representing airline workers, they're, they're echoing that call. And, and Unifor, I think, it certainly has an in- influential voice. So, you know, this can help the, the industry, uh, I think, as, as we talk about, get people comfortable traveling again. But is there going to be a need for some uh, additional assistance for the industry? It's, it appears so. Um, you know, like I said earlier, the, the industry is really reeling. You know, they, they are struggling dramatically. Um, it's not just the airlines, but it's all kinds of, uh, you know, transportation. It's the accommodation sector, the hotel sector, the food and beverage sector, as you know, uh, the, the travel sector. You know, think about the tour operators, the travel agencies, you know, think about the cruise sector. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the CDC has announced a, a no-cruise order in the United States until, uh, you know, the end of the year. Uh, so all of those uh, have been very bad news for the for the travel and tourism industry. And, and uh, you know, we, we, we need that sector, especially um, transportation. Transportation is essential for not just for, for leisure travel, but also for business travel. And, uh, you know, the economy is not going to recover if we don't have a, a transportation system that is efficient. All right. Well, some interesting insight, Dr. Dimash. Thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. You are welcome. Thank you. Good afternoon. Take care. That is uh, Dr. Frederick Dimash. He is director of the uh, Ted Rogers School of Hospitality, Tourism Management at Ryerson University in Toronto. So, yeah, and and he sees this as a a real big breakthrough potentially. You know, it is going to have to be scaled up a lot more than this. And and so it's unclear how long it's going to take the uh, airlines to get to that point. Part of it's going to involve, it's going to have to involve some signal from Ottawa that Ottawa is okay with this approach and maybe even some some further cooperation. I think ultimately, look, we got to make sure that the provincial labs have the testing capacity that they need. Mind you, it's, it's, it's certainly Air Canada's prerogative or any other private company to purchase on their own any kind of approved testing device that's available. So it would be unfair to suggest that Air Canada is somehow taking away from Ontario's testing capability or any other any other province. And I think we need to recognize, too, that obviously, look, this this industry, the airline industry, the broader tourism industry represents a lot of jobs. It's a big part of the economy. And so that, that's got to be a consideration, too. Look, ultimately, I think that the thing that's going to help the industry the most is is keeping the virus suppressed as much as we can. Uh, because if all of a sudden you got raging virus hotspots all over the place, it's all a moot point. Who's going to want to travel to any of these places? Uh, so first and foremost, I think you want to ensure that, A, there are places that Canadians are comfortable traveling to, and, and B, that there are countries we are comfortable welcoming travelers from. Uh, but obviously, you know, the ability to test does overcome some of that. But uh, I think ultimately that's that's got to be the starting point. So the idea, though, of having widely available rapid testing for people who are traveling, 
it can make a huge difference. Just even in terms of the unease people might have about uh, going anywhere, getting on an airplane. And certainly, I think, in helping us to figure out a way around the 14-day quarantine, it made sense, obviously. We were having a, a lot of cases being brought back into Canada initially by returning travelers. We probably didn't move quickly enough on this or enforce this strictly enough at the outset. But looking at where we're at now and, and the tools we have available, that maybe we don't need it to be quite as rigid now. So again, the idea of, of a testing-based approach, where you're tested either before you depart or when you arrive, you go home and you quarantine for a few days and you're tested again. And then maybe once you get a negative uh, on a second test, maybe that should be sufficient. All right, so obviously, look, we, we've still got a pandemic we're dealing with, and, and our focus really ought to be on, on responding to it. But there is going to be a need, and, and the federal government has talked of it, uh, and, and going back and reviewing our response. And was it what we needed it to be? Was it as effective as it could have been? Uh, so certainly there, there has been criticism of those early days, January, February, and even into March. You know, were, were we aware of what was going on? Were we taking the steps necessary to prepare for what was coming? And, and certainly one shortfall that, that has been pointed to is the changes that occurred to the Global Public Health Intelligent Network, GFIN as it was known. And again, as we talked about earlier, the idea being that, that we had this to keep an eye on what was going on around the world, to sort of be an early alarm system, an early warning system when it came to these kind of potential problems. You know, as, as stories were starting to emerge out of Wuhan and social media posts and warnings from doctors and, and hospital data, all of that. You know, if someone's watching all of this, you can start to piece together what's happening. And this certainly would have would have painted a picture of, of a problem emerging. Now, the problem is for us, if we're relying on the official line from the Chinese government, we're maybe not getting the full story. So what went wrong with GFIN? The problem was not that the system didn't work, but that the system was changed in a significant way. But essentially, instead of being outward looking, it was changed to be more inward looking uh, to try to respond to situations uh, arising here in our own country. So it went dark at a time when maybe it was, was most needed. Well, joining us for some thoughts on the decisions that were made at the time, and uh, what we might have missed uh, as a result of uh, GPN being shut down. Someone who was, uh, who was there on the inside has some interesting insight on, on all of this. Uh, Greg Fife, former executive director of the Intelligence Assessment Secretariat in the Privy Council Office between 2000 and 2008. He is uh, currently president of the Canadian Association for Security and Intelligence Studies. Mr. Fife, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Nice to be here. It's interesting because not a lot of Canadians, I think, have heard of the Global Public Health Intelligent Network. But, but tell us a bit more about the, the, the role that it, it played. Well, it was set up originally to comb all sources that were available that would give some hint that there had been a disease outbreak. Uh, certainly, there's a process within each country whereby local authorities report to senior authorities. They then report to the World Health Organization. 
that all takes time at the best of us in the best of circumstances but there's always a temptation for a government to hold back to hope for the best to hope that it's not as bad as it seems because there are immediate implications for the economy uh, if you report that there's a pandemic there is a parallel way of going though through open source intelligence if there is an outbreak uh, doctors start receiving patients with odd symptoms Relatives have people who die. Funeral directors see more going on. There's more uh, funerals reported. Doctors' networks and other healthcare workers start to talk about a strange new disease that's appearing. So there's all kinds of indicators that can be picked up if somebody is listening for the right indicators. And that's called uh, open source intelligence. And that's what mm-hmm. GFIN was set up to do. So there's there's many, many things that they, they try to do. And of course, it's not not just uh, China, although China has been the source of some outbreaks, it can be uh, many, many countries um, through the Middle East, through the uh, the Far East, through Africa, through South America, and there are many, many pandemics that are coming all the time, probably more than we realize because not all of them are as disastrous as COVID has been, but that is the network that was uh, essentially uh, shut down and turned to uh, internal uh, monitoring, which is a which is a very very different thing, and obviously, if a pandemic uh, starts in another country, it's much less useful. Right, and maybe it speaks to you know the question of what's considered intelligence, and perhaps there's there's uh, a very narrow way of thinking on that that it's more geopolitical in nature. But I mean, COVID has really driven home the fact that obviously you know potential pandemics, uh, viruses, you know these kinds of almost like healthcare issues can be uh, considered intelligence. What what was the thinking in Ottawa? Well, when it was set up, it was obviously uh, because there was a sensitivity to the fact that important information uh, was was needed uh, in in the pandemic world. Yes, there were all kinds of definitions definitions of intelligence. There's all kinds of levels. I was mostly looking myself in my career at at strategic level intelligence, but the military uh, looks at every kind of intelligence. They need to know everything from what a landing site looks like to what the global implications of a, of a major dispute are. Uh, open source intelligence is called open source intelligence uh, for, for a reason. And that reason is that there are some sources that are fairly obvious. So you can read a, a very detailed story by a journalist in the New York Times and you get a lot of information. But for somebody to go to an open source specialist and say, look, I need, to, I need to know what's happening in this particular area. It takes a very, very skilled person to understand how to use social media, how to use technical tools that are available. And the information that's produced by that may not be reproducible by any other means. So whether you call it intelligence or you call it information or you call it open source information, it's very, very important. It gives you an early warning of things that are happening perhaps before other governments want to tell you, perhaps even before they can tell you. You know, and from what I've read, um, you know, some of the, the potential issues that arose, um, you know, things like H1N1 or Ebola or even Zika virus, uh, that GFIN had a pretty good track record when it came to, to gathering information on these outbreaks. That's, that's what I've uh, understood from the reporting and from everything that's been said. Uh, you you really do have tools available to you that go beyond uh, country reporting. And 
open source is just a very, very good form of intelligence. Now, any form of intelligence can give you false signals. Any form sure. of intelligence can be inconclusive. Uh, it's very, very seldom that you make a, an important decision based on absolutely 100% uh, comprehensive knowledge. But if you get an indication through open source intelligence that something is going on, then you can turn all your resources towards finding out what exactly it is and whether your first indication should be taken as a serious warning. Obviously, we've got the benefit of hindsight now, and, and looking back at, at the decision, it sounds like maybe it was last year or, or 2018 when things started to change with GFIN's focus. Um, how important is it, though, from your perspective, to, to understand the, the decision-making process that led to that and you know, whether we need to, to restore it to its original mandate? Well, I think a step has already been taken to restore it, and a new person has been put in charge who does have a background in intelligence. But I think the larger question here is, if you set up something for a warning on an emergency, you can't take it down again uh, just because the emergency hasn't happened as soon as you thought it might. Mm -hmm. So maybe you're not going to get a disastrous pandemic every five years or even every 10 but if you get one every 15, that's worth an investment in warning. And this is one of the difficulties with pandemics. Uh, they, they are not going to come every year. So somebody says, well, this seems like a waste of money, or we need those resources for something else. I think this crisis has been so significant that I don't think that's likely to happen again in, uh, in the foreseeable future. But, I mean, even at the time you were there, uh, so from 2000 to 2008, you headed up the, the Intelligence Assessment Secretariat. If someone had proposed this change at the time, I mean, what, what would your own reaction have been? I wasn't really involved in open source intelligence to the same extent. I was mostly looking at um, normal intelligence. Mm -hmm. But it did give you some clues on... Uh, pandemics. It did give you some idea of what governments were doing in response and how effective they'd been. And uh, there was an acceptance then that was it, it was a very important complement for the other kinds of information that were coming in. Uh, I really have a hard time understanding how the decision was made in this case that what I think was a very important line of intelligence reporting and warning should be stopped and turned to something else. Uh, internal health is obviously very important, but there are lots of uh, kinds of reporting around internal uh, health problems, and the information is not difficult to find. It might be difficult to assess and know what the policy response should be, but for pandemics, the chances that initial reporting will be a little too slow and that you will miss an opportunity to kill something while it is still just developing and where you can take strong countermeasures without high fatalities, that makes it very, very important to catch something like this as early as possible, and it should be seen as worth the investment. I think it is now. I think it was when GFIN was set up. Why the judgment changed in the last couple of years, I simply don't know. Well, hopefully we get an independent review of all of this and then maybe with it some answers. Uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, Greg Fife, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate your insight on this. You're quite welcome. All the best to you. Take care. Uh, that is uh, Greg Fife. Uh, so as mentioned, former um, executive director of the Intelligent Assessment Secretariat in the Privy Council office, currently president of the Canadian Association for Security and Intelligence Studies. So, look, here's somebody who understands this a lot better than, than probably most of us, and, and he's baffled by it. 
you know, the quote from him in the uh, Globe and Mail today, we turned off the wrong tab. So why? Why did we? So is it just a lack of appreciation of the value of this kind of intelligence? That's what it seems to be. As the uh, Globe Mail reports, when it came to the novel coronavirus, this meant prioritizing information provided by the Chinese government and the World Health Organization over potentially valuable uh, clues from informal sources that might better indicate how aggressively the virus was spreading and what steps were needed to contain it. Such information, known as open source intelligence, was dismissed within the department as merely rumors, according to some analysts. So they were told to focus more on official information instead of working with what was referred to as informal information. And, and that's a really unfortunate way of phrasing what is otherwise referred to as open source intelligence. You know, trust but verify is the old saying. So even if the government's inclined to take these statements at face value, what's the harm in comparing that to what's being gathered through open source intelligence? And so that was a big failing on Canada's part. And I think you see the lessons of certainly Taiwan is a great example of a country that, that really, I think, uh, has the, the kind of history that lends itself to a more distrustful position vis-a-vis -vis the official line from the Chinese government. And, and certainly, you know, Taiwan is more plugged into a lot of these um, more unofficial channels of open source intelligence. So everything they were seeing and hearing was sounding alarm bells in, in Taipei. And as a result, they, they were much better prepared. And, and you still see now to this day how it's paying off. So again, it, it's hard to know to what extent we could have headed this off. You know, and certainly a lot of the cases that ended up coming to Canada came via international travelers, a lot of it via United States and Europe. But, you know, you, you wonder, and we'll never know, but you certainly wonder, what if we'd had that kind of intelligence available early on, how much difference would it have made? Well, certainly the Bronfman family, Bronfman family name has long been associated with uh, wealth and power, a uh, family based in both Canada and the U.S., of course, made their fortune uh, through Seagram's, uh, the liquor company. Uh, but now the, the Bronfman name has been linked to something much more nefarious. Uh, the uh, heiress to that Seagram's fortune, right. Claire Bronfman, has uh, received a sentence of 81 months in jail and a $6.5 million fine for her role in what was known as Nexium. Uh, that became the, the focus of a real intense investigation after word emerged of what was essentially a sex cult within this organization, women being branded all to service uh, the leader and founder, Keith Ranieri. Now, Keith will face his own sentencing later this month. But uh, Claire Bronfman, has mentioned, 81 months in jail. Uh, so she played a key role in this and also, by the way, gave at least $100 million to bankroll this organization. Joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program someone who's followed all of this very closely. Rick Ross is a cult specialist and deprogrammer. He's founder and executive director of the Cult Education Institute and uh, also author of the book Cults Inside Out, How People Get In and Can Get Out. Uh, Rick, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Uh, as I say, and you followed the Nexium story very closely. In fact, uh, they were well aware that you were following this. You had a lot of uh, run-ins with, uh, with Claire Bronfman, didn't you? Well, you know, Claire Bronfman was basically the money behind Keith Ranieri and, 
I might point out also her sister, Sarah Bronfman. Uh, the, the two of them financed Ranieri for years, and in particular, anyone that Ranieri perceived as an enemy, someone that he wanted to silence, they would pay out millions and millions of dollars to sue people. And I was one of the targets. Uh, they sued me for about 14 years, and Claire Bronfman also paid private investigators that stalked me, went through my garbage, uh, penetrated my private bank records and phone records in an effort to um, go after me. She even contacted one of her father's top advisors through Seagram's uh, to find some way to have me criminally indicted or arrested. And he rebuffed her and said he absolutely absolutely would have nothing to do with it. And so I had quite a long quite a long history dealing with the Bronfmans and dealing with Keith Ranieri. So as you say, she played a key role in all of this, not just through financing, but the very active role she took. And, it, and it's one of the, the weird aspects of the story, just how devoted so many of these people were to, to Keith Ranieri. What, what was it about him or this organization that he built that, that really drew people in, people from, from privilege, from show business, from wealth? Yeah, Allison Mack from Smallville, Nikki Klein from Battlestar Galactica. Uh, she still is loyal to Ranieri, even though apparently she was branded with a cauterizing iron with his initials. And she and another woman who were recently interviewed uh, didn't want to talk about it, but imp- implied that they had been part of the, the sex ring that mm-hmm. Ranieri established, that he, they had had sexual relations with him. I think what happened here is that Ranieri sold himself as a kind of self-help guru. He had all these seminars and courses that people would enroll in. They would pay him thousands and thousands of dollars to do so. And during this process, he would break them down, and these, uh, these seminars could last 14, 16 days, uh, grueling hours, um, not enough sleep. And he would just basically cave people in, and then uh, they would they would begin to you know submit to him, and his demands would be ever escalating. I don't think anyone that became enrolled in Nexium at first blush understood what this organization was really all about, or who who Keith Ranieri really really is. I mean. Uh, he, he, he billed himself as a genius with an over 200 uh, IQ, but in fact, uh, he was a predator. And uh, he basically tricked and trapped young, vulnerable people and many celebrities uh, through deception and through coercive persuasion. Right, yeah, the, the course of persuasion, and there, there's, you know, one troubling element of how they approached all of this, the idea that, you know, members needed to, to turn over what was known as collateral, and it was deemed some kind of a personal sacrifice, part of your journey to becoming a better person. But ultimately, it was something that was held over these people. It was one way of, of keeping them from ever leaving. They were essentially being blackmailed. Yes, they were. And uh, they would give information that was embarrassing about their personal and private life, possibly photographs of themselves in the nude, uh, you know, whatever they felt was incriminating. Some would even exaggerate what had happened in their lives. And Ranieri would use that. He would hold that over them. And so that your listeners understand exactly, he created a subgroup 
that was called DOS. It was a dominant, dominatrix, uh, dominating slave uh, cult within a cult. And Ranieri would have each woman submit to being branded with a cauterizing iron on her pelvis with his initials. And uh, this would take 30 minutes. There would be no anesthetic. And he would watch. This was a deeply disturbed man. Uh, I, in my opinion, he must be a psychopath. And uh, I dealt with him for years, spent hours with him in depositions, in court-ordered mediation, in my litigation. He was uh, a, a person who, who really wasn't a genius other than he was a kind of savant who could find the vulnerabilities of people drill down into them the cracks in people's lives and leverage them and break them open. And he did that to person after person to exploit them and take advantage of them for money, for sex, for anything that he wanted and could get from them. Now, he's going to be sentenced, I think, later this month for, for his crimes, correct? Very likely uh, he will be sentenced, Rob, to probably the rest of his life in prison. Yeah. Um, the, the sentence that was given to uh, Claire Bronfman was certainly indicating that this judge is serious about uh, of these people being punished. And Claire Bronfman, in a way, was a victim, but in another way, she was his number one enabler. Without her money and money from her sister, Sarah, I don't think that Keith Ranieri could have hurt as many people as he did. So I think that uh, Claire Bronfman will have many years to think and to meditate on what she did and how she enabled this man to hurt so many, so many people. And this is all catching up with him now, finally, unfortunately, but this, this Nexium and, and everything they were up to, it seemed to really fly under the radar for a long time. And once people started finally coming forward, including Canadian actress Sarah Edmondson, and I spoke with her last year when, when she released her book, when they tried to bring this forward, I mean, law enforcement, it's almost like they, they didn't know what they were dealing with. They didn't know how to approach this. They almost seemed to not even know who Keith was or what Nexium was. How, how did they manage to fly under the radar for that long? Rob, there was a lot of money that greased the wheels of uh, local politicians in Albany, uh, even law enforcement, from what I've heard. Uh, and so there was a reluctance because of the power of the Bronfman, because of the money that was behind Ranieri, uh, for, for people to do their job. There were plenty of victims. Uh, Sarah Edmondson was not the first, though she came forward to show this brand that mm -hmm. really shocked people as, as to how brutal Ranieri was. Uh, but there were women that he had, he had traumatized and terrorized over the years. Uh, there, it was more than a decade that I would receive phone calls and be contacted by his victims. And it was widely known that there were issues of people without documents that were illegally in the United States, uh, that there was a sexual exploitation and abuse, that there was tax fraud, that there were labor violations, that there was child abuse. Uh, I mean, on and on we could go. I think uh, there were two people who in particular came forward at, 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 one, at one point. One is Sarah Edmondson, who you mentioned. Another is the actress Catherine Oxenberg, who worked with Sarah Edmondson and others to expose Ranieri. She herself had been involved 
relatively briefly with Nexium, but in the process, uh, her daughter, India Oxenberg, became involved through her mother's interest. And even though Catherine and her then-husband, Casper Van Deen, the actor, left Nexium, uh, India stayed. And Catherine was desperate to get her daughter out of out of Nexium, and she would eventually suffer uh, and be branded as other women were in Nex in in DOS in Nexium. And Catherine did everything she could to rescue her daughter, and eventually she did do that successfully. But only after Allison Mack, the actress from Smallville, who was India's roommate, was arrested. And India was left without a roommate, without a coach, and she began thinking and reflecting independently by herself. I, I think one of the things for your listeners to realize is how incredibly micromanaged the people were in Nexium, how each one had a coach, how they were required to report to that person constantly. And in this day of text messaging and cell phones, uh, Ranieri and his and his uh, leaders were ever present uh, to to really manipulate and control the lives of, of the members of the group. And I mean, as you pointed out, I mean, he still has followers that are loyal to him. I mean, obviously, he's going to jail probably for the rest of his life. But are there any remnants uh, of this organization that that still exist? Yes, uh, they they interviewed with CBS News uh, just recently in the last few days. And they were doing demonstrations, dancing, singing uh, to music, outside of the correctional facility where Ranieri is held in Brooklyn. Uh, so there are these people that have followed him for decades, uh, that invested who knows how much money. Many of them would go broke, giving Ranieri their last nickel, and and they, you know, they gave him everything they had. They gave him their. Uh, themselves sexually, many of many of the women, and uh, they would provide free labor. They would pay endlessly for courses, and and this was uh, a man who they invested their trust in, their loyalty in, and for many of them, it's just too terrible to face the reality that this man is evil and that he was a fraud, and that they were tricked and uh, taken advantage of. And Rick, just what we have you on the line, and we've been hearing a lot in the news lately about some of these these groups on on the far right that have been uh, getting the attention of law enforcement. I know the debate this week, um, you know, about the Proud Boys kind of uh, into the spotlight. We've been hearing a lot about this group QAnon as well, this movement. I mean, as you keep an eye on on some of these groups, how much of this to you sort of does seem almost cult like in nature, and and how worried are you by the rise of some of these groups? Well, Rob, first of all, let me let me give you a, a definition or the nucleus for a definition of a destructive cult. First, you need uh, to see the salient, most sing the single most salient feature in a, in such a group, which is an absolute authoritarian leader who becomes an object of worship and has no meaningful accountability. Uh, that would be like Jim Jones, Keith Raniere, David Koresh. And then second, that that leader uses a thought reform program or coercive persuasion to break people down and, and gain undue influence over them. And then finally, that the leader does harm, that the people are hurt. And uh, that varies by degree from group to group. So when you look at QAnon, 
which is an online uh, conspiracy theory community uh, that is very disturbing. Uh, it's unclear who Q really is. Is Q an individual? Is Q a collective? Who is Q? Other than that, though, I would say that there is evidence that there is a kind of a, a echo chamber indoctrination uh, going on with QAnon followers online. That is, that through social media, through this kind of bubble that they create, where they only uh, refer to their own their own uh, YouTube videos, their own downloads, their own mm -hmm. their own community online. And they reinforce each other that there that there is this kind of cult-like mentality where they seem to be disconnected from reality and in their own kind of alternate universe. And certainly, QAnon has been destructive, and there has been violence, uh, you know, promoted by the group in a, in a very uh, disturbing way. Often claiming to save children, uh, they perpetuate their conspiracy theories. Uh, the Proud Boys, to me, would be just one more hate group. Uh, I'm, I'm not aware that they have a, an absolute authoritarian leader that is the mm -hmm. focus of, of the group. But that's what you look for for a destructive cult, that it's personality-driven, defined by a living leader who controls things, like Keith Ranieri did. Much more at uh, culteducation.com. And again, the book, Cults Inside Out. Rick, I uh, always do appreciate the insight, and thanks again for making some time for us here today. Thank you, Rob. All the best. Uh, that is Rick Ross, uh, cult specialist, deprogrammer, founder, executive director of the Cult Education Institute, culteducation.com, and author of the book, uh, Cults Inside Out. All right, 403-974-TALK is our number here. We are back with more right after this. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.